I'm David Ocko, the Almeyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. In the eight From My Angle episodes this fall, we have explored the podcast's year-long theme together from a variety of perspectives. We have explored why humans are compelled to gather with Hugh Weber and Gino Church. We've considered the importance and challenge of active listening and civil dialogue, two vital components to bringing people closer together, with Michelle Kinder, Stacey Todd, and Jolie Robinson. And more recently, we've pondered the skills required to come back together through grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation with Father Josh Whitfield and Reverend Alina Williams. Of course, throughout the fall, Omari and our students have offered their insights, the insights of young people, on these ideas as well. Today's guest, author and documentary film star Arshay Cooper, will help us tie these fall conversation threads well together. And I am so excited he agreed to join us. I read about A Most Beautiful Thing, the documentary in which Arshay stars, in a Sports Illustrated article earlier this fall. Intrigued, I streamed it and was entranced by its humanity, its beauty, and its poignancy. I also immediately recognized its connection to our theme of together. A Most Beautiful Thing is based on Arshay's memoir of the same title. The book and documentary tell the stories of Arshay and his friends Alvin Ross, Malcolm Hawkins, Preston Granberry, and Ray Hawkins Jr., all of whom grew up on the west side of Chicago in the 90s and attended Manly Career Academy High School. These boys became brothers through a most unique experience. Crew. That's right. These young men from Chicago's west side would, through their own curiosity and the goodwill of an advocate, come together via a sport most commonly found in our country's most elite communities. Director Mary Mazio, herself a rower and member of the 1992 U.S. Olympic team, weaves the stories of Arche and his friends together in a most beautiful way, indeed, and carries their experience forward to the group's reunion at Arche's impetus on the water in 2018. I hope you enjoy learning from Arche Cooper. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. In the eight episodes of the From My Angle podcast this fall, we've explored the podcast's year-long theme of together, and we've done so from a variety of perspectives. We've discussed why humans are compelled to gather with Hugh Weber and Gino Church. We've discussed the importance and challenge of active listening and civil dialogue, and more recently pondered the skills required to come back together through grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And of course, Senior Amara Hayes and our other students have offered their insights on this theme along the way this fall. Today's guest, author and documentary film star Arshay Cooper, will help us tie these fall conversations well together. And I am so excited he agreed to join us. I read about A Most Beautiful Thing, the documentary in which Arshay stars in a Sports Illustrated article earlier this fall. I was intrigued. I streamed it. And I was entranced by its humanity, its beauty, and its poignancy. And I saw immediately its connection to this theme to get um, of our theme together. So, Arshay, welcome to the From My Own Podcast from New York, not Chicago, but so glad to have you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Dave. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be with you. So the movie is based on your memoir of the same title. 
And it tells this amazing story of friends of yours who became brothers, essentially, through the most unusual of activities for a kid from the west side of Chicago, crew. And so before we get into that incredible story, you seem to me to be a person of deep curiosity, a risk taker in the most positive senses, a unifier of people. How is it that you choose to introduce R.J. Cooper to people? Yeah, you know, I... A lover, right? A lover, a rower. Uh, you know, I think I do a lot of different things, but I think just my opinion is that uh, is it, you can easily unify people that are very different through a sport like rowing. And we could talk about that later, but, you know, I'm a unifier through the sport of rowing. That became your passion point and really was the thing that brought people together. But you've got a set of characteristics and skills. I, I mean, I wonder, you know, what are the ones you think you bring most into, into groups that if you don't articulate them as this is who I am, people uh, see in you immediately? What, what would you identify? Um, I think it's just, you know, I know how my work is always, so even when I go to a space where people don't look like me, how can you make this place warm and welcoming, right? And I think it's like, he's warm, he's welcoming, right? He's easy and uh, he understands, you know? And I, I, I can't fake it, right? Even if I try to, even if I'm upset, it's like, you know, I tell you that people in high school would be like, you don't sound right cursing, man, stop cursing. You know what I mean? Like, and so I think it's just that warm and welcoming spirit that I take everywhere. So you're also an author, in addition yeah. to documentary film star, and you pen this memoir called The Most Beautiful Thing. And it's about you and your friends who formed the first all-Black crew team in, of all places, the west side of Chicago. You, Alvin, Malcolm, Preston, and Ray grew up near one another, but your neighborhood was anything but unified. So tell us a bit about how rival gangs divided the streets on which you and your friends grew up. Yeah, well, I have to say there are at least 30 different gangs in Chicago. And one of the biggest gangs is the Vice Lords. So Vice Lords was so big that all these different groups divided just that one game alone and called themselves conservative Vice Lords. A little bit of conservative. The insane Vice Lords, you don't want to mess with them. They're a little crazy. You got the unknown vice lords, like where are they, where are they from? They just come from nowhere, right? You got the renegade vice lords. And there was so many vice lords that took over a community that we call the neighborhood Holy City. And so everyone knows that you don't go to Holy City. And so these gangs are in every four blocks. And... And did you and the guys live like within blocks of each other? Did you know each other coming up before Manly Technical High School where you all would ultimately get involved in crew? Or did you not know each no, other? No, only knew, only knew one person and that was Preston because we was in middle school together. And one of the other guys, he was a known fighter. I knew of him, right? And, and Alvin. And I seen him at school doing a lot of damage, right? And, you know, and so... Um, yeah, that's, that's, you know, and it wasn't until crew that I got to learn a little bit more about all, all the other guys. But you, you understand that, that, you know, they were in these gangs, not because they really wanted to, right? They was like, I need to find safety, right? And, and you, you walk out the house, you, you, you know, you're skipping over pools of blood. You, you hear gunshots when you sleep, right? You run for your life. We have witnessed what most soldiers have witnessed in war, but before we were 15 years old, we seen it all. Right. And, and, and so people are like, Hey, if I don't want it to happen to me, it'll, you know, I'm going to join some game. Right. 
this is like mid nineties, mid to late nineties, uh, essentially. Right. Yeah. Mid to yeah. And so there's this incredible map in the mute in the movie that, that shows how you would have to walk to get to school. And as you had to make that walk to school, all these different gangs that you're talking about or segments of the vice gang, like all of them are popping up essentially at the intersections of the next block. <laughs> right? yes, so, yes. I mean, if your family don't have a car, you're done, you know, and there's the bus, right? Where they call it the pickle jar because you in a bus and you can get pulled off the bus. You know what I mean? If someone sees you through the window and, and uh, yeah, that, that was the toughest part. And, and that's still the answer. How do you get to school safely? Bingo. Still trying to figure that out. Gosh, yeah. So you could get picked right off the street. But you all end up going to uh, Manly Career Academy High School. And this is where essentially the story really picks up traction. And you all actually come together. So around this podcast theme of together, let's talk about what brought you and the other guys together. You were united through the incredibly admirable efforts of a man named Ken Alpert. Uh, he was a former rower at Penn and a trader on the Chicago exchange, this is the most unlikely guy to come wandering into the Holy city there to try to unite West side Chicago kids around an equally just incredible endeavor crew. So tell us a little bit more about Ken and share the pizza story that led you and the other boys to start the manly crew team. Yeah. You know, Ken was a trader. He was a cool dude, man. Real cool dude. And you know, he tried to, one of his employees, Michael Gorman, who was just nuts, he said, Mike, you should volunteer working with young people. And Mike was like, no, that's not me. And he said, come on. And Mike said, the only way I have a volunteer, just kind of joking around, if you go out on the west side of Chicago and start a rowing team, and, you know, kind of laughing about it. This kid was like, huh, you know what I mean? And then he, he goes to nine high schools and they all said, no, like our kids won't do this. Come SARS, Manly High School Career Academy, with some balls, just crazy, you know what I mean? But he, he connected with the athletic director. He, he told them his vision and got a team together. And I'll tell you what I, I thought was great about it is that he got a woman, right? And a lot of women wasn't coaching men's sports at that time. So to have a woman there was pretty awesome in a neighborhood that was raised by women that was comfortable with women. And then he got uh, a black male who didn't know much about rowing, but was a strength and conditioning coach, but knew the neighborhood. Right. So bring a really good team together and they I show up in the lunchroom. I see this boat. And I'm like, what is happening? No one signs up. Like people are just like, no, we don't even do the water. Like, why are you here? The next day I walk in the lunchroom and I see everyone signing up. I'm like, what is happening? And I see a sign that says, sign up. You get free pizza and everyone loves Chicago pizza. And so everyone was like, we just going to go for the pizza. And when we went upstairs, the speeches, you know, usually when you sell someone on basketball or football, it's about the future. You buy your mom and dad a house one day, the cheerleaders, the fans. But for rowing, it was the now. Like you learn how to swim and overcome your fear of water now. You only race once in your city and you travel now. You downtown every day now. And so it was the now. It was everything that I needed in my life right then and there that I, that I became sold on this program. So when you, how many how many of you went upstairs to that first set of meetings with the pizza and then how many actually kind of materialized into the crew team? Yeah, I think the first day was like 40, 50 kids. And then we started off with 21 kids, um, the, the start of the season. And then when it came down to it, we actually went down to probably like eight kids, but we rotated racing into four. 
you know, and so that and and and, and but those eight that we rotated, we kind of uh, stuck with it the whole time. And what year was that for you? Freshman, uh, senior, junior, where were no, you? Or junior, senior. So junior and senior year. Yeah, yeah. Was that no, all the no, no, soft, no, soft, no, sophomore juniors. So if you, the book touches on it goes deep into more years, but the film only covers kind of like a, a season and a half. Yeah, the latter part. But yeah, you yeah. you did it you did it for multiple years. Yeah, yep, three years. And and the program really combined not just not just crew itself, but I mean Ken and Michael, who also ended up coaching you. I mean, it was really around entrepreneurship. You studied leadership. So tell me a little bit more about what surrounded the uh, on water experience of of the crew team itself. Yeah, you know, it wasn't really just about fast boats. It was like, what did this neighborhood need? And what I like about Michael Gorman, he said that. You know, right away they start these programs and it's like, let's just give them tutoring. And Mike was like, I don't know if this group needs tutoring, entrepreneurship, right? Because we all was like, I want to make money. I'm not going to do this. I want to go make money. And that spoke to us. You want to make money? We're going to teach you how to make money. You walk into this entrepreneurship program, which was every Thursday. Um, you learn how to shake a hand, look someone in the eye, how to network, right? Uh, just learning how to be a people person and understand what are the needs, what are the community needs, right? And how we can sell those things to help our own community. And so, you know, that was, it was great. It teaches you how to go after it, right? And I think that, you know, I want to jump ahead of it, but at us, at a, me and Ken was at a conference one time and someone asked Ken, well, how many of those guys went on to be an Olympic rower? And he was like, none, but 90% of them are entrepreneurs and hire people from their community. Yeah. Right. And, and that was the goal. Yeah. As a barbershop, you know, you're you're working in, in film as an Al author. has a moving company. Yeah, you know what I mean? Malcolm has a trucking company. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. So it which is which is really cool. So I, I mean what struck me again around that notion of poignancy of all this is um y'all get on the water was not a place where you all had spent a lot of time. But what you speak about, uh both retrospectively to your high school experience, but then also in the in the context of the reunion that is at the subject of the movie and we'll get to in a second is this notion of peace that you found on the water so unpack that a little bit for us like how, how did that how did that come to you and what did that feel like yeah you know I think especially in a group that faced so much trauma growing up for some for me at least football wasn't my sport because it 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 it, it actually uh, triggered a trauma like I wanted to fight because I'm used to like looking, looking, you know, someone come at me, fight. Basketball's a trash talking sport, right? Like you suck, you're good, you're not never gonna be good, you're garbage. I heard this stuff growing up from adults, right? And I wanna fight when I when I hear that stuff. But for rowing, it's no conflict, it's non-combative, right? And we all who have vacation, who've been around water, felt that peace, right? At the beach, near the lake, even when you shower, being able to collect your thoughts. And so we were there. No fans, no bullying, no police sirens, no broken street glass. And you push out there in open water and you have to build that, 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 that connection, right? You have to follow each other. And the sound of the blade constantly hitting the water, the sport is rhythmic, right? It's meditative. Some people meditate a half hour a day and it completely changed your life. But to be out there two hours where you only hear one person talking, they're saying sit tall breathe you belong here you have a right to be here you're powerful beyond measure you're strong we didn't get that you know and and so we was downloading serenity right and and and, and i always say that the teachers would say that 
you were walking storm, but this sport was the only sport that calmed the storm in us, right? And, and um, so before it became a sport of competitiveness, it was first a sport of healing. And, um, and that's got us to the next level in this sport. Yeah, that's so cool. But I want like you still had to get on that water the first few times when you must have all been scared. Like how long did it take for you to get through the fear and to the peace? Was that in the first year of rowing? Was it the first month? Like how, how long did it take? Yeah, and that's why I talk to programs. Sometimes they put kids out in the water right away and they don't they don't come back. We had to we got on the erg for for a couple months. We went through swim lessons. It wasn't just swim lessons, it was water confidence, right? Yeah. And then we went to the tanks, which is like almost like, you know, being on the water. And from the tanks, the first day we went on, we didn't even move. They had to push us back inside, right? We was like, you know, we had guys crying. We had guys who knocked people out on a daily basis out there crying. You know what I'm saying? Like, they been, you better not tell nobody I'm going to knock you out. You know what I mean? So that <laughs> it was it was insane. But I think that's what drew us together is that you had to be tough at Manly. But for the first time, you had all these tough guys seeing weakness in each other, fear in each other. And we're like, we got to keep this to ourselves, okay? Like, we can be scared together, right? Like, it, we wasn't fearless. Um, courage is being afraid and doing it anyway, right? And that's what we did. And it wasn't until, like, the second time where they only had two moving the boat while we all was at way enough, and they add on the, the next person. Wow. yeah. Four, watch and experienced it for move, and then we rotated. And that's how we started out feeling the peace in the water. If you get all eight, it's gonna be shaky. It's not gonna work out. It's not gonna, it's just, you can't get there. And so I think the fact that the coaches wasn't just coaches, but youth development coaches, mm -hmm. right? That understood us and our fears and where we come from and the resources we didn't have, they were able to, to work with us and knew how to get us going. And so Ken and Michael found good people to come work with you, and they also did some coaching, but really organizing the whole, yeah, the whole, the whole Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Amazing commitment of time on their part. I mean, they were busy, were doing their professional work as well, but they were coming each yeah. Thursday for the entrepreneurship yeah. class. And then, yeah. I mean, you know, they was also building an airplane in the air. We, there was a few things that was a little, little, little crazy. Like it's like y'all got those kids doing that, but yeah, but. Trust me, we deal with crazy all day long. Like, you know what I mean? Just like Ken hopping on a, a school bus and driving it, <laughs> which we shouldn't have done, was a little crazy. But, you know, it was it, it was great. It wasn't nothing that we wasn't used to, right? Like, just like making things happen right away, you know? What brought this group together was this shit. They were, there was curiosity. Like, what's this crew all about? There were advocates there, right, on the boat and around the boat saying, you know, you're strong. You can do this. This is going to give you new opportunity. You're better than your present condition. Then as you all came together, I mean, I also saw in the movie, um, and this is that transition from friends to brotherhood, like I think it may have been Alvin, the fighter, right, who was like going over and waking up one of the other buddies, at the, you know, like really like caretaking for each other, like this deep sense of like mutuality. And, and concern for each other. Talk a little bit about how that began to form amidst these friends of yours who soon really have become your lifelong brothers. You know how that happened, Dave? It, it was the isolation of us being the only Blacks out there. Mm -hmm. We were like, okay, they're from different gangs, right? They were like, but we don't, although we, you know, it wasn't, wasn't like hostile, like crazy, but we didn't trust anyone. It was a different environment. So we would say, hey, you going to use the restroom? I'm going with you. 
And then a conversation would happen on the way to the restroom and then on the way back. It was like, we have to stick, for each, stick up for each other, right? And I think that's what kind of drew us closer to each other. And that the fact that the sport, that you're not like practicing in your neighborhood, you're not playing all your games in your neighborhood, that every race is out of town and those long road trips where you're getting to learn about each other. That's when the brotherhood started. That's when we started, started to care um, for one another, right? And, and when you feel the magic in the boat, that is because we are understanding each other's weaknesses and strengths in the boat and outside of the boat. And, um, and, and we're, we're, making it, we're making it work, you know, that way. So the movie, you know, goes high school at Manly and then it jettisons forward to our reunion. And so what I was interested in was this incredibly uh, powerful, unique experience for two, two and a half, three years in high school. I was curious about like what happened after high school, right? So what were some of the highs and lows of uh, your respective experiences in the years after high school up to the reunion? And did you all stay pretty connected or did you did you drift apart did no you stay we, stay connect, we stay connected for the most part like you know Preston kind of drifted away a little bit and started selling drugs a little bit you know his, his mother was a well-known drug dealer uh Malcolm dad because of what they experienced in the south was kind of pulled him away because he didn't want his kid in the all-white space because of his experience and so me Pookie and Alvin kind of stayed and a couple other guys um we recruited a couple other guys on the team but we became roommates after, right? Uh, so we, you know, so I did AmeriCorps and then went to La Cordon Bleu. Uh, Alvin was a natural entrepreneur. And he said in the film, he credits the program for being an entrepreneur. He started his movie company very early, but got into some trouble because someone was hitting his sister and ended up doing some time, right? And in that environment, it's, it's just things that you can't escape, right? Especially if you don't have enough resources to, to kind of leave the neighborhood. There's always mm -hmm. something coming at you. And, uh, and Pookie Ray, you know, he's been great with the community college. He actually lives in Dallas, worked for United Healthcare. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but Malcolm, you know, they hit some hard times, but came back, you know, there's a scripture that my mom always said in the Bible is that train your kids in the way of the Lord and it will never depart from them. And it was the same with that piece and uh, all the lessons we learned from Rowan and entrepreneurship, you know, people went different ways, but they all came back to it, right? right? And it's the thing that made them successful now. But you didn't keep rowing as a group after high school. No, we did not. I mean, unless you go to college, you have to row together. But, you know, right. for me, I, you know, I traveled for a while, then I worked in a sport for a long time, you know, diversifying programs, right? And helping people start their rowing programs. And and neighborhoods like I grew up. Yeah. So, and that's what you did through AmeriCorps. You were going into, into communities? Uh, with, Ameri no, with AmeriCorps, I was just doing service learning stuff with schools. Like I wanted to stay in my community. And then I went, I was a chef. I did a chef thing for a long time. And after that, I wrote the book. And then I, that's when I started uh, helping pro rowing programs start throughout the country. Yeah, once you got going with that. So, but really what brings you back together some 20 years later or so, I'm guessing you all were, you know, pushing 40, 38, 39, 40, should have been about 20 years, was the untimely death of Michael, who you've mentioned, Michael, uh, Michael O'Gorman. He, he passed away and you all end up connecting um, at, his, at his funeral. Why, why, did you, why did you want to get your friends back together on the water and why did they agree to do it? 
Yeah, it was hard for them to agree. Everyone was out of shape. You know what I mean? It, it hurts. You know what I mean? It, you know, it's, it was crazy. I think um, for the last 20 years, Preston would always, he was a really good rower. He would always say, man, I, I wish I can go back all the time and, and, and undo my mistakes and get back in the water again. I felt like my life would have been somewhere else if I would have just stayed. And he said it. He was saying all the time. And I remember after Mike dying and, and talking, you know, uh, about our experience, I was like, you know what, we can go back. Let's go out there and do it again, you know? And, and they did it for different reasons. For Malcolm, he wanted to show his son, like, this is another way out. You can do something different, right? For Alvin, like they said in the film, is to celebrate that he survived, right? And for me, it was this new generation. And not only that, the parents, the moms were either working two jobs mm. or doing drugs or busy with all the kids, right? Couldn't ever really support us. And I think they heard the stories and read the book and had this like just remorseful spirit of just not being able to support and giving them an opportunity to see it one time was something special. And so those are the collective reasons why we decided to do it. Yeah, that scene uh, when once you all re, uh, rejoin and come back together, where you take your um, your your kids to the tank that you refer to, which is effectively what it sounds like—a tank of water with oars in it and seats—and you can actually mimic the 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 um, feeling of being in a skull. Like that is just an, an exceptionally uh, powerful um, scene that the uh, director of the film, Mary Mazzo, um, really conveyed with just beauty and and the power of that passing it on to the generation that you that you spoke of i mean it was mm -hmm. just an exceptional exceptional scene yeah, yeah just amazing um so you guys um you write your book you come back together rewrite your book and then as we mentioned this filmmaker mary mazio you connect via twitter like it is a total like modern day social media story. i know i mean before that i was tweeting out to will smith and ava and spielberg like hey hey check out the story you know yeah. and, no she, and, I got a, and i got a tweet from her. and it's the perfect combination because she'd been a night she was on the uh u.s crew team in 1992 so she gets the whole um meditative element of the sport that you you know were so attracted to and obviously was um you know drawn to your personal story but then you like end up getting people like common who narrates the documentary and grant hill and Dwayne wade who come in and are executive producers like again you're this unifier how did you all bring all these people together for this film project yeah you know first i was like hey uh, a documentary where's morgan freeman you know <laughs> but you know <laughs> i love common's voice you know i think that's one of the first things i told mary is like you got to figure out how to get Common. I don't know Common, but she did do a past film with Grant Hill. Her Grant Hill was friends. And so Grant loved the story right away. He was like, uh, what? Black kids row? Like, you know, fake news, right? Um, you know, and he was the one who reached out to, you know, Knife Wander for the soundtrack and Grant, I mean, and uh, Common and made, made it happen for us. He, I mean, he's a huge advocate of, of A Most Beautiful Thing and uh, been a cheerleader and been a great producer. So he actually made those things happen. And they all said the same thing, you know, the, the gift of storytelling that you guys brought to the film, right? We, mm -hmm. While living in a world 
um, where it's all about social media and, 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 and posting things that, that, that's really not that way, right? You can go through something hard, but you're making yeah. it look good. He said, you guys expose yourself to bring change, right? And they all thought that was, um, you know, great. Yeah, and so the movie, like, it does take each of your personal stories and, and illuminate them. And I, I suspect if you just ended it with those stories and then you got back together in your road, it would be cool. Like, it would be a really cool story. But then there's this whole um, piece that, again, I think highlights your charisma and and this, this notion of approachability that you talked about and identified in yourself, where you decide to reach out to officers of the Chicago Police Department to row with you and the members of the reunited crew team. And this is where I'm thinking about bringing, again, disparate groups together to theme. I just done podcasts on reconciliation and grace and, and this whole idea of finding forgiveness. So what motivated you to reach out across the divide to bring members of your home community together with officers with whom you all had high degrees of distrust and had been in conflict? That was sort of the norm for you with these officers. What was the motivation there? Yeah, you know, there's two things that scares a black mother on the West Side, right? Their kids in another community and I have worked towards fixing that. And then a kid, their son interaction with the police officer, right? What can I do? to meet that need. And you've seen the film, how can you not be around my team and not be moved by them? So in order to refocus the lens, well, in order to find alignment, you have to refocus the lens, right? And it was that simple. If I can get these guys around, my guys, it, it recasts the narrative. They see something very different in the interaction that they usually get. And you know, I told the guys, I said, as a teacher, you always will forget some of your students, but as a student, you'll never forget your teacher. And we have an opportunity to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then if they can just learn our names and your kids' names, maybe it'll stop you from posting, say their names, right? And it was that simple. And they were like, okay, you know, and they didn't do it because, uh, you know, it would be good for film, but they trust me. Yeah. We built that trust 20 years ago and I never, never let them down, right? And so, uh, when these guys came out, it was a little awkward at first. They, you know, it was a little awkward. You know, these guys like, what was happening? But the and they were members was, of the police's crew team. Oh uh, no, they never no, even. So no, how did not you even the officers. Like, if they're not even rowers, how did well, you? I, well, well, honestly, we had officers who said no, no, and then it was one rower, one cop that was a rower, and he found three other guys who never rowed and was like, hey, I found three cops, they're down, and. Um, you know, and the ERC machine, we, we broke the ice. And I think that when we got in the tanks, the lessons that I teach young people that they can learn through the sport, some of the things that we talked about, I talked about that while they were rowing with the guys, right? Mm-hmm. Really breaking the ice and bringing them in that we, we can't do it alone, that we have to move forward together and we have to understand each other. And, and Mary, and that was supposed to be the end of it. But it, in the film, I was like, no, it's, it wasn't enough. We need more interaction. We need to talk a little bit more. And that's when I said, come race with us. Because I knew in those trainings, we're going to learn so much about each other. We're going to feel the same pain, right? We're going to learn about each other's strength and each other's weakness, about each other's kids, right? That that part, that scene with the kids in the tanks, mm-hmm. the cops were actually there for that. Oh, Not wow. only that, wow. the kids came and... They kids know what the media say about their dad. Our kids know what the media say about us. But to have both of them rowing together and mm-hmm. laughing and 
it was a whole, it was a spiritual, uh, it was like a, a spiritual awakening. It was insane. It was beautiful. And you had, you know, the camera crew crying, you know what I mean? It was, it was crazy. But I think at the, the last thing I would say is that um, the cops will tell you, we learned that Malcolm that calls his son every 10 minutes and he, that black men love their kids in the neighborhood, that Alvin didn't make bad choices, but difficult choices to survive to protect himself mm -hmm. that uh you know that the press is one of the best entrepreneurs on the west side of chicago and and, and that's what they would tell you mm -hmm. at any time right and and i think that sports unites people and it gives you an opportunity to to learn from each other and there were uncomfortable conversations but you know we all know as athletes that in order to get the results that you want you have to be discomfort it has to be this discomfort right you have to be uncomfortable the whole time to grow to get stronger to go somewhere and, um, and, and, and so we have a group chat, we continue to conversate. Um, we talk about a lot of things that are happening now. And so uh, I, I, I'm glad I did it. I don't even think that the growth as an athlete is it though. I think if we want to grow and evolve as humans living in a world that's complex and global and diverse, you know, that same element of discomfort has to come through the proximity to different stories and different identities that your very example sets. In other words, it's not just about rowing or sports. Like I think it's about all of us who are trying to fit, make our communities more unified, right? That we got to get closer and more proximate to things that are really unfamiliar to us. And rowing just happened to be your context or your venue for doing that, right? Yeah. And that's what, you know, by the quote I always use is that, and the biggest lesson I learned in rowing is that I can't do the work of eight people. I need eight people to do the work and we'll get that much faster. And our community has a four pulling the eight and it is heavy. How do we get everyone involved, right? And then we'll get there faster. The, um, uh, the documentary was released in uh, March of 2020. In fact, you were telling me before we went on that you, you did a, a, a showing here in, in Dallas uh, late February, you know, February before things shut down on your way to South by Southwest. And um, really this is all of course, before the pandemic tore through our country and particularly communities of color before the murder of George Floyd. So like today, some nine months later from the film's release, does the film carry different messages for, for us or for you around this moment of reckoning uh, and you know, kind of systemic inequity and injustice or, you know, is yeah, it you know, I would say that people, first I would say that people always talk about, Oh, the, the film is so timely. I'm like, you know what? That film would have been perfect in 92. It would have been perfect in 96. It would have been perfect in 2000. Like it, the, same, the same stuff is still happening today that was happening 20 years ago, right? It would have been perfect. I think the difference now is that from my experience, especially talking about even white people in the sport of rowing, even like Harvard class of 69, people who I've had talkbacks with, is that they no longer are in denial about some of the injustices and stuff mm. that's happening in the world, right? After seeing it for their eyes. And I think that's why the film was so great. You know, a lot of times Chicago media give you eyesight of everything, but not the insight, right? And I think the film gave a lot of folks insight. Like they knew, like somehow speaking into these Yale, Harvard, Princeton, all these guys, class of 70 or whatever, they... Um, they knew kind of what was happening, but the film helped them to, you know, you know, in some way, it just humanized mm. everyone, right? Like we know that whenever there's a mass shooting at a suburban school that they're gonna send in trauma counselors right away, which they should, 
but we experienced that every day and saw nobody, right? Like, but now they starting to see it and hear it in a way that they have never heard it, right? And so I am, and that's why with this documentary, we, we could have done many different things with this, but my number one objective is like, how do we see everyone as a human? And how do we uh, talk about interracial trauma, peel back some layers, right? To kind of understand. And, um, and, and, and so uh, before, before COVID, before George Floyd, Sports Illustrated, Wall Street Journal, all these places right. that we feature in, we, we wasn't getting any of that. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, yes. But now we get a lot of good press. After yeah, but what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, those very unfortunate circumstances of our most recent past have actually tilled the soil and, and, and made the soil so much more fertile for the power of your of your story, which I agree would have been powerful 10, 15, 20 years ago. But it is just even more poignant now, given what I think all of us that have had our eyes open um, have come to experience. And I think that's why it, it, I recommend it to everyone I come across and say, please watch this because it is beautiful. It is poignant and it is powerful. You can learn more about it uh, by, uh, of course, streaming the movie on Amazon Prime or visit the website, um, rshaycooper.com, support his work, which uh, I intend to do um, and uh, financially so he can continue to go out and do great things with young people uh, around the around the community. What's next? What's next for you in wrapping up here? Like what projects do you have uh, in the hopper? What are you excited about? What the future might hold for for you, for your friends, whomever? Yeah, we have a lot of cool things coming up. You know, we are not we're working with members of Congress um, on the issue around mental health and trauma. Right. With Danny Davis there. And, uh, you know, we're, we're working on we meeting. We're talking about what can we do for our city? We just dropped the most beautiful thing, Fila Shoe, which is pretty awesome. Nice. That is pretty sick. Um, you know, we a uh, lot of feature film activity coming our way. So I keep you keep you updated on that. And I, I, the one thing I'm excited about, we started a, a most beautiful thing inclusion fund, right? And a lot of people are rallying around that fund and and supporting my work, which I've always done, is bringing rowing to schools like Manly Career Academy. And I spent some time in Dallas. Uh, working with them and recruited in uh, a few schools and got kids to come out for the Learn to Row Day and uh, and kept in touch with some of those kids and came back and did the film because, you know, I, I love um, South Dallas and the need that they have. I feel like I can bring some energy there. And, and so that's kind of what's what's um, what's next for, for us. Well, if you come back to Dallas, uh, boards I sit on with United to Learn, which is deep into Dallas Independent School, elementary schools, uh, a good friend of the podcast and the, of the school, Michael Sorrell over at Paul Quinn College, uh, we would be happy to, um, you know, uh, work, work with you on behalf of these issues of empowerment and equity and really reconciliation, this notion that if we really, there are ways that we can come together across um, divides that we think are impenetrable and permanent and, um, and find harmony with each other as, as humans. And I think at the very highest level, that's what your film portrays through its title, a most beautiful thing. Like it is not just the rowing that's beautiful, it's the human story um, and, and the sense of uh, harmony that the movie leaves you feeling in this so divided, like div divisive, angry world. The, the movie just speaks about uh, beauty and peace and togetherness. And so um, I thank you for making it and sharing it with, with me and my wife, Molly, we loved it. And uh, we would be happy to host you in Dallas at Parrish uh, and he, when time allows you to get down here. So I hope our, our paths cross in the future. Arshay Cooper, thanks for being on the From My Angle podcast. 
Thank you, Dave. Uh, see you next time. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. If you're interested in Arshay Cooper's work and supporting his cause, please visit his website at arshaycooper.com. That's A-R-S-H-A-Y. We will take a break now for the holidays, which I hope you enjoy with your families in whatever form it takes this year. In January, we will pick up with our Together theme by considering how we act and serve together. Thank you for spending 2020 with me on From My Angle. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year to you and yours.